Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the Word of God through the lens of Catholic tradition, but we also, and that is the sacred tradition that comes to us from the apostles. So it's very early day traditions, not just later stuff. And we are especially focusing on praying through Scripture, and we'll continue to do that over the coming months. We'd love to have you be part of the show. You can do that like these nice folks have done by coming into our studio audience here in Arndale, Alabama. Or if you can't make it here, you can call in. Uh, if you're in North America, you call 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. And that would be on Tuesday at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. If you are not in North America, then you can still call, but you have to call country code 1, area code 205-271-2980. So we'd love to have you call in, or you can send us questions by email, writing to scripture and tradition at EWTN.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Today, we'll take a look in Mark chapter 8, especially as our Lord experiences a certain number of frustrations with the Pharisees because they are challenging his successful ministry. They want signs to test him. We'll also see that this kind of blindness to Jesus exists among his apostles and disciples. So that's what we're dealing with. Now, you can still get my book, Praying the Gospels, Jesus, Miracles in Galilee. That's available at EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 52885. And by the way, next week we'll finish our series on this book, Praying the Gospels. And we'll introduce a new series of shows, uh, this time exploring the Gospels, to show the ways in which the apostles failed our Lord, but our Lord Jesus also anticipated further problems, especially the sins of the clergy and the hierarchy. We'll be focusing on how our Lord gave us examples of how to deal with these problems spiritually, emotionally, rationally, practically. The guide that we'll be using is a book I wrote three years ago called Wheat and Tares, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. 
And you'll also be able to get that book at EWTN's religious catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com where it is item number 81098. 81098. And we'll go through that uh, as a way to help us pray through the issues. That's the goal of that book. How do we pray through some of the issues that have shown up throughout time? All right. So we are, today we're still finishing up in this book on praying the Gospels. And we're taking a look at Mark 8, verses 11 to 21. The first part of this, in Mark 8, verses 11 to 12, it says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, asking Jesus for a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. So this is something that the Pharisees do. As soon as Jesus gets off the boat, remember, he had multiplied the loaves and fish on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and he and his disciples sailed across the sea to Dalmanutha. That's, we don't know exactly where that was. Uh, nobody knows exactly. It's not mentioned uh, outside the Gospels uh, as a place where we can identify. But the Pharisees see him coming because can see, you know, the Sea of Galilee is down in something of a geological bowl. So you can easily see that there's a boat sailing across from one side to the other. And they obviously had recognized the boat. So they approached him when he landed. And this is a consistent challenge. I, he'd been challenged a number of times by the scribes and Pharisees. And remember the distinction. The scribes were the intelligentsia, the better educated members of the Pharisee party. And you see, for instance, when our Lord spoke to the crippled man, the paralyzed man, who had been let down through the roof at St. Peter's mother-in-law's house, and it, it said that, uh, you know, when Jesus uh, said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. In Mark 2, verses 6 and 7, it says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And at that point, it's also important that he knew what was in their hearts. Remember when we discussed that in the first book on praying the Gospels? That when we discussed that, we mentioned that in the Old Testament, for instance, Jeremiah 17, only God knows the inner thoughts of people. So Jesus proves his divinity and his authority to forgive sins by knowing what's in their hearts. 
And then we also see in chapter 2, verse 16 of Mark, when our Lord went to the house of Matthew, the tax collector, it says, when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, it was a Pharisee rule that you couldn't associate with tax collectors. It was assumed, usually correctly, that they were um, stealing money. They, they got paid. They, they, the Romans farmed out tax collecting. So a tax collector would you know, take in what the Roman government said, and anything beyond that, he got to keep. Now, that's a pretty good deal for someone collecting taxes. He has soldiers backing him up, and he can take these taxes and keep the leftover. Uh, so that's why the Pharisees wouldn't even let you marry into a family that had a tax collector in it. If there was a tax collector in a family, you couldn't marry somebody, anybody from that family. That's how much they disliked the tax collectors. And so they criticized that. And then also in chapter 2, but verse 24, the, Pharisee, the Pharisees said to Jesus about his disciples when they were picking grain as they walked along. He said, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Uh, you know, picking the grain. Now, you could, there's nothing against picking grain but in, in the Old Testament, but they had expanded the rules a bit. And, you know, so they were criticizing for that. And he responded by saying that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Again, claiming to be God. And then in Mark chapter 3, uh, when Jesus heals on the Sabbath, the Pharisees criticize him. Remember in Mark 3, verses 1 to 6, where it says, again, he entered a synagogue. A man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So already they're looking to accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come forward. And he said to them, to the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger, and he was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So Jesus did something good, and they chose to do something bad on the Sabbath by trying to plot how to kill Jesus. We also see... In Mark chapter 3, verse 22, that when Jesus cast a demon out, the scribes from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons he cast out demons. So that's what they accuse him of, casting demons out because he has a devil. And then in Mark 7, when his disciples are eating without washing their hands, the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, 
they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe about the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? This is part then of constant harassment and criticism from the scribes and Pharisees. And it's important to note that how now they have changed their tactic. Their dispute with Jesus concerns seeking some proof that he is who he says that he is, that he has authority from God to preach. They want proof. And they want to take a look at proof, even though he's already done lots of healings, exorcisms, twice multiplying loaves and fish. These are the things he did. And, but again, the problem that may be underlying it is that our Lord had gone preaching to the Gentiles and multiplied loaves and fish for them. And that seems to be a big issue here, that he had been preaching and feeding the Gentiles. That's something that they uh, were, were wanting a sign now. Uh, the miracles are something that they're looking for, but the, the miracles that are already done don't seem to count in their mind, and it, they haven't designated what they want as a sign. Um, and so this is something that we then have to see Jesus' reaction. Notice that it said, he sighed deeply in his spirit. And this sign is not just a sign of exasperation. To understand it, go back to the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 21, verse 6, where the Lord says to Ezekiel, Sigh, therefore, son of man, sigh with breaking heart and bitter grief before their eyes. And when they say to you, why do you sigh? You shall say, because of the tidings, when it comes, every heart will melt and all hands will be feeble and every spirit will faint and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it comes and it will be fulfilled, says the Lord God. So Ezekiel is about to give a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the rest of the people. He's already in exile, but the rest of the people will also be driven from their land. And he sighs in front of everybody as a sign that the doom is certain. And that's what our Lord is doing, to see that sigh in light of what Ezekiel did.
Okay, that would be the uh, response. Then our Lord goes to a rhetorical question. He says, why does this generation seek a sign? Now, he knows why, you know, that there's a lack of faith, lack of trust in him. And by this generation, he's using, again, an Old Testament phrase. It's found in Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, where it said, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Just as Noah was righteous in his generation and was saved from the flood, Jesus is also righteous. And he brings up how this generation, same phrase as in uh, uh, Genesis 7, is something that he is applying to the people around him because they will be doomed. And in fact, it will be 40 years after this that the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed again. Also, the phrase, that generation, shows up in Psalm 95, verse 10, where it says, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are people who err in heart and they do not regard my ways. Think about that phrase. And our Lord is applying this expression to the people talking to him and demanding a sign. And this sigh is very much, along with the criticism of this generation, a way of telling them that you are, by by seeking a sign and not accepting the signs you already see, you are already in great trouble, uh, that you are doomed. So this is uh, very much, um, you know, something that he says. It uses an Aramaic formula, even though, of course, the gospel is written in Greek. He used a very typical Aramaic and Hebrew formula. It, It says, Amen, I say to you, if a sign will be given to this generation. That is a type of expression you put if. It means it will not happen. But he put it that way exactly as in Psalm 95, again, verse 11. Remember in verse 10, he criticized that generation. Now he says, therefore I swore in my anger, if they should enter into my rest. That's what the Hebrew actually says. And nishbati be'api, im yiva'un ilmanuchati. Therefore, I swore in my anger, if they should enter. Now, it means that they would not enter into my rest. That's how the English usually translates it. But that's not what the Hebrew formula says. And what our Lord says follows that same formula from Psalm 95. It implies in both Psalm 95 verse 11 and here that they will not see a sign and instead 
They will not enter into the Sabbath rest, as in Psalm 95. They will not come to experience salvation. This is the threat. And ultimately, this will move us later in the gospel to Mark 13, when our Lord threatens both the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. And this is something that they have to see. Now, what is at core here? At core, the issue is that the sign they might get, see, that's, this is one of the implications here. The sign they might get will be their punishment and doom. This is what our Lord will eventually say to them about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And the people will be worse off after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem than they were when the Babylonians did it. The Romans were more merciless than the Babylonians, and they were bad enough. So this, their lack of faith is preparing them for their doom. They're not paying attention to the miracles. They're not paying attention to the multiplications of food, the healings, the blind being able to see, and the exorcisms of the demons. And if they don't have faith, no matter what sign they see, they will not believe. And this is no different today, by the way. We'll talk about that in a second. But this is the same thing that you see in every period and in every culture. It's not just a Pharisee problem. It's a human problem. And their rejection incites him to cross the sea again. This will mark the end of his ministry in Galilee. Their inability to see what he's doing will mean the end of his work in Galilee. So this would be something for us to consider in our own prayer. First, the Pharisees had set themselves up as Jesus' judges. They were going to judge him. And he refused to accept that they are his judges. Instead, think about how frequently in the Gospels, including Mark, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, that phrase, Son of Man, appears in Ezekiel, but the reference that is more to the point in this case is Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel wrote, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Jesus is that son of man. And as such, we see this not only in the Gospels, but this is something that uh, has a reference in Revelation chapter 14, verse 13 where it says, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead 
who die in the Lord. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Now, the, this, uh, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Um, this, this reference in Revelation 14 refers to Jesus as this Ancient of, uh, coming to the Ancient of Days, that is to his Father. And he's going to present people for him. He, Jesus Christ, is ultimately the judge. And he's the one that's going to judge everybody's deeds. He's the one who will be the sign himself. When he appears at the end of time to judge the world, he will be the ultimate sign. So what you might want to do is picture yourself standing next to Jesus as he responds to the Pharisees. Talk to him about times when you find it hard to believe, when your own life of faith seems difficult. A lot of people around us try to say, well, science is against the faith and you should go with science and things like that. You know, there are all kinds of reasons. You know, the church just wants to control your life and that's why they give you these commandments. It's just control. And you just do what you want. That's very much the way the devil would try to tempt us. And we have all kinds of temptations against the faith, and sometimes we want proof that Jesus is real. Picture yourself standing there and talk to him about your need to grow in faith. Think about the circumstances that raise questions. What is it that makes you question the faith? Talk to him about it. What makes you question whether he is real? Some people, despite all the various kinds of evidence, will say, well, maybe he wasn't real. No, there's plenty of evidence on that. But find out what is it that makes you question him? Ask him about the kinds of tests and signs that you've sought from him in the past. What kind of ways do you, you want to know that he really was real? And what would he say to you, especially, what would he say to you about the way your faith has grown, how it has developed, and where you are today? And maybe conclude that prayer, discussing your faith and your questions, your concerns, and then conclude with that prayer, soul of Christ, sanctify me, body of Christ, save me, blood of Christ, inebriate me, Passion of, water from the side of Christ washed me. Passion of Christ strengthened me. Oh, good Jesus, hear me. Make that your prayer as you conclude this. And you might want to go back to that uh, a couple times because in a time like ours where people are losing faith, it's very, very important for us to get back to our Lord and see where our faith actually is. All right, we're going to take a little break. We'll come back in a few minutes, so please stay with us.
seen how our Lord responds to the blindness of the Pharisees. And after that, he gets into the boat. So we'll take a look at that because this will be the occasion for the disciples to show their blindness in Mark 8, verses 13 to 21. So let's start off with Mark 8, verses 13 to 16. Jesus left them, that is the Pharisees, and getting into the boat, again he departed to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they discussed it with one another, saying, We have no bread. So again, leaven is what you use to make bread rise. And uh, yeast or other baking soda, things like that will help make bread rise. And this, uh, you know, leaven gets into a loaf of bread, into, you know, a lump of dough. You mix it in there and it makes it rise. So leaven is a symbol of the way something influences everyone around them. That's what's going on with the use of leaven. Leaven is not uh, wheat or anything. It's, it's actually different, well, there are different kinds, but it ends up making the bread rise, like little yeast. You know, the yeast, you warm them up, bring them to life, mix them into the dough, and then they all die and their rotting bodies inside there makes a gas that puts the bubbles in the bread. <laughs> it's lovely, but it so, smells so good. I used to love it. My grandmother made bread. So here, the disciples, you know, Mark makes mention of this. They forgot to bring any bread except for one loaf to share with everybody. That's the 12 apostles and Jesus. And they only had one loaf in the bread. Now, that may be a symbol. We'll see. The description, that description of that one problem of having one loaf of bread for so many people, which means everybody get, gets just a small bite of bread as they row across the sea. Um, this opens up the way for them to misunderstand our Lord's teaching about the influence of the Pharisees and of Herod. Uh, the disciples are so focused on the lack of bread that um, perhaps uh, their need for energy, they, they had to row and you need to have, you know, something to burn up. You know, you want to, that's why you eat. You, you keep yourself stoked up. And as they're rowing across the lake, going from somewhere on the uh, western shore up north toward Bethsaida, that's where they would have been going, to the mouth of the Jordan, where the Jordan River comes into the Sea of Galilee. It's not a very deep area right there, um, but it's got a lot, a lot of fish. In fact, Bethsaida means the house of fishing or hunting, either one, but Said is to hunt or to fish. And uh, this is where they're headed. And so they're thinking about this and 
trying to break a loaf of bread into 13 pieces so everybody gets an even piece. But that would mean everybody would be unsatisfied with the bread. It's not enough, right? So everybody gets a little bit, but nobody gets enough. And they might well have been blaming themselves for forgetting to bring more bread. But knowing the way they act, they're probably blaming one another. Didn't you bring the bread? What a dope. We're, we had so many leftovers. What would you leave it there for? You know, all that kind of conversation would be going on uh, among them because they usually blamed one another for the various things that go wrong. Uh, they're not particularly good at accepting their own responsibility. So uh, with that focus uh, on the lack of loaves and the presence of only one bread, they're diverted from paying attention to what Jesus is actually saying about leaven. They think he's criticizing them for not bringing the bread. And that's not it. And especially when, again, they had one loaf in there. And it may well be that that one loaf is a sign of Jesus who called himself the bread of life, if you recall. Now that's in the Gospel of John, but it's something that he said right after the multiplication of loaves and fish. He called himself the bread of life. And they have Christ, the one true bread, in the boat. And they don't quite understand. They're thinking about their hunger. Christ is warning them about something else. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And he certainly would have had in mind this recent you know, immediately before this, the dispute with the Pharisees about a sign. That would have been right then and there. They were there. They should have been alert. But they're not. They're not paying attention to what just happened. They're not paying attention to the presence of Jesus, the bread of life, in the boat. That's what's missing here. And this is uh, where our Lord has to get on their hearts, on their, uh, on their uh, you know, minds and go after them a little bit and criticize them. Now, we can understand why he warned against the Pharisees. In the first part of the show, we went through the different times they had kept on criticizing him. But remember also the warning about Herod. Herod was the Tetrarch. He ruled, you know, one large area that included Galilee. He was the ruler of Galilee. His brother Philip ruled up in the north where they're headed to. Bethsaida was part of Philip's territory. And the, Herod had killed John the Baptist because of a dumb, dumb oath, an open-ended oath 
to his stepdaughter slash grandniece. Remember, Herodias was also Herod's niece whom he married, and Salome was his grandniece. But he had married his niece, so his grandniece was now his stepdaughter. This is another good reason to stay clear of Herod. Um, and John got beheaded because of that. Also, the Herodians were plotting to kill Jesus with the Pharisees. They, they, the Pharisees and the Herodians were plotting to kill Jesus after he healed the man on the Sabbath. And his warning about the leaven of Herod is a warning about allying ourselves with political power. This is something that's always risky. There's no political power, no party, no candidate, no king that you should totally give all your allegiance to. We always have to be aware of the influence of any politician on us, especially if they get us to blind ourselves to the commandments of God. If we like a politician more than we like the commandments of God and His church, then we are going to mess up in sometimes very big ways. So we have to examine our own consciences and pay close attention to where we put the focus of our attention. Picture Jesus in the boat and you with him as one of the people in the boat. Think about, are you concerned with the needs of the present world, the present time, more than focused on the presence of Christ? Are the issues going on now more important than Christ or not? And especially since he's in our midst. And when we pray, are we so focused on making sure we get the material things we need that we neglect to spend time on the presence of Jesus, especially his presence in our tabernacles, his presence in our prayer time personally? Do we so focus on our concerns that we don't focus on Jesus? And when we're at Mass, are we so concerned to make sure that we get out of Mass before anybody else so we can get out of the parking lot and get to the restaurant, especially if you are at the you know, 9.30 Mass and you're trying to get there before the Protestants go there after their service? You know, trying to beat the crowds, right? No, no, no. Do we focus on those concerns and worries, or do we focus on Jesus? This is the question. And this is what we, imagining ourselves in that boat with him as one of his disciples, where is our concern with the politicians and other influences? Or is it the presence of Jesus in our midst that is the center of our attention? And we have to ask that. And again, I would urge you to conclude such a meditation with the soul of Christ and focus on his soul and the power of his body and blood 
in our midst. All right, we'll take a little break. We'll come back in a couple of minutes and deal with some questions and other concerns. So please stay with us. I just want to let you know that tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Wednesday night, we will be talking with Dr. Quentin Van Meter, the president of the American College of Pediatricians. And we are going to discuss the dangers inherent in the current medical and public policy approaches toward children with gender identity issues. There are a lot of issues with this, and some people are pushing to do things to children. Uh, as our bishops recently stated in a letter that no Catholic may participate in doing these things. Uh, but we'll talk about why, you know, tomorrow night. So do listen to us. I think it'll be a very important thing. All right, let's take an email at the outset. This one is from Marion. It says, Dear Father Mitch, even though I have repented, confessed, and done penance for my worst sins, would God ever will problems and or suffering on my daughter and granddaughter as a form of punishment for me? In other words, have my past sins caused problems for my daughter and granddaughter? Marion. Um, there are two ways to understand that, Marion. First, um, in terms of them being punished for your past problems, no, no. God makes it very, very clear in Ezekiel 18 and elsewhere, uh, in Jeremiah also, that the uh, sins you commit you are responsible and that he will not punish children for their parents' sins, okay? That's just not what our Lord does. However, there can be problems that are caused by somebody's sins. For instance, sin is not something that a person does just involving himself or herself. That's not the way sin works. Sin also has a social effect. So, and there are lots of ways in which that can happen. Some of the more clear examples, because I don't know what your sins were and I don't need to know. Um, but, you know, in the case of somebody who gets drunk, they're the one who's drunk. But if they go ahead and get behind the wheel, they can cause death or injury to somebody that didn't get drunk by crashing into them or causing an accident. So the sin of their drunkenness wasn't intended to cause problems for others, but 
unintentional results can be from somebody's sins. That can happen in a variety of ways. Um, you know, so you have, you might have to pay attention. Were there effects from my sin on other people? Or, but, but certainly not that God is going to try to punish them for what you did. You just have to ask, you know, did my sin affect others in my family, for instance, that I didn't plan on? That's possible, but uh, unintended, but possible because sin has a social component to it. So that's what you have to ask, but certainly not at all that God would punish anybody else for what you did wrong. Okay. Make that real clear. All right, we have a caller. We have Anthony in California. Anthony, what can we do for you? Good afternoon, Father Mitch. Uh, my wife and I pray for you, and we hope you pray for us. But uh, my Thank question you. is about the Pharisees. Yes. Um, there were supposed to be people that were uh, of the law and mm -hmm. above people, the common people, the common person. What were they doing following around Jesus if they were like supposedly gods on earth, the Pharisees, uh, the separated ones? Yeah. Uh, well, here's, they saw themselves as evaluating what other people would do. They, they would look and, you know, uh, and examine other people's lives. They had very strong, clear principles, and they very much wanted to make sure that they protected the country from defilement. They really saw, the, uh, for instance, one of their beliefs was that if every Jew would obey all 613 commandments for a half hour, but everybody do it together. They believe then the Messiah could come. And if Jesus was doing something that was wrong, he was preventing the Messiah from coming. That enters into some of these debates that he had with them. For instance, when he hangs around with sinners, they assumed that the sinners were preventing the coming of the Messiah. Jesus corrects them when he's at the house of Matthew and says, no, the Messiah comes for the sinners the way a doctor goes for the sick. Okay. So that's, that was what they saw as the role. And they saw themselves as the separated ones because, in fact, they were lay, it was a lay movement and they were critical of the priests who belonged to the Sadducee party for the most part. And the priests were not living out the law the way they should in the laws of purity. So they said, we will live out the laws of purity that belong to the priests and show them what to do. That was part of their mission to in, invite others to obey the law. And they were making sure that Jesus was not breaking the law. 
So that was going on there. Okay. Thank you, Anthony. Good question. We have a question from our studio audience. Ma'am, where are you from? We live in Texas. Great, great. And what can we do for you this fine day? Oh, well, my question was about today's gospel. Um, it ends with Jesus telling the man who was healed that go and sin no more. Mm-hmm. But in another passage, I don't, don't know which passage in the Bible, but it says that uh, the man was sick not because of his sin or his father's sin, but uh, it was for the glory of God. Right. So... I guess it seems to be like contradictory in these two passages, like one was Jesus saying that the sin could have possibly made this man sick. Right. While in another, it says the sin was not the cause of his problem. Right. And here's something that is a very important thing that you're dealing with there. Namely, that on one case, sin could have been the problem that because he had sinned, he had experienced paralysis, whereas the other one, you're thinking of John chapter 9, where the man born blind was uh, told it wasn't his sin or his parents' sin, but this is to show the glory of God. Our Lord is able to read the hearts and minds of different people. So he knows that in the case of one guy, sin is the, the reason. In the case of the other, it's not. And that his ability to read hearts and minds is exactly what the issue is. So that's very important to keep in mind. And you can see, again, if somebody gets drunk, it's not that God is saying, okay, I don't like you, I'm gonna give you a hangover, no. Everybody that gets drunk gets a hangover because the sin causes that problem. And other sins cause other problems. You know, you commit sins that can get you into various diseases and all kinds of things. Um, That is your fault. But other times it's not. So you have to be very discerning as to which is which. Okay. All right. We have another caller on the line, Chad, in the great state of Wyoming. What can we do for you, Chad? Good afternoon, Father. Say, I know you. Oh, thank you. Yes, uh, the cross that Jesus carried, I've seen depictions of him carrying the whole cross and sometimes just the crossbar. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could enlighten me on that. Probably not, because the artists are giving the best guess they can. It, most people would say that it was just the crossbar, but they don't really know. Um, it, you know, it, it's possible that he carried the whole cross, but, you know, again, most folks think that the, the upright beams were set in place and left there and then people carried their own crossbar with a sign that would have their crime on it. That they put, that would be hanging around their necks. And so that they, they usually, so the, the sign that was ab, uh, uh, above his head, he had carried that around his neck while he was carrying the cross. That's the way they did a lot of that. So we don't know for sure. Uh, and artists are using various um, 
you know, uh, their own imagination to get it best they can. All right, let me get one more email. It says, this is a good one from Yvonne in New Jersey. Hi, Father Packwood. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. I don't mind the earth passing away, but I'm not too happy about heaven passing away. What do you suppose he meant by that? Well, I suppose what he meant by that was what the Bible said. In the book of Revelation, you'll see uh, in verse 20, in chapter, excuse me, chapter 20, that I saw the old heavens and the old earth pass away, and a new heaven and a new earth came down from God. So that, there that the old heavens uh, are going to pass away, uh, and it's not the place of, you know, being with God, but a new heaven where the resurrected bodies will be able to dwell. That's the new heaven, and that's why it's described as the new and heavenly Jerusalem with streets of gold and fruit that grows every month, and the leaves are for the healing of people, and there's this fountain flowing from God. All that is depicted in the book of Revelation. I, I recommend you take a look at chapters 19 through 21. You'll see some of that there. But before the end of time comes, I have to end right now. We're out of time. So, Lord, bless you all and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lead you by his peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And just want to thank you for your support and urge you to keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill. If you do that, we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you all and thank you for your support. Thank mm -hmm. you.